Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Kitubot, daf nun zayin, page 57. Well, we have a new Mishnah. Before we get to that Mishnah, I just want to point out there's again another discussion sort of about uh, a particular moment uh, within the wedding ceremony itself. They get, a, again, back to the discussion that we saw yesterday of Chibat Chupa. But here it's about what's the end of the marriage ceremony. Is it the chuppah itself or is it when bia happens? And then they even discuss is it the beginning of bia or the end of bia? So again, we sort of see this mental gymnastics that the Amorayim do trying to sort of pin down the exact moment when the marriage ceremony itself is actually considered completed and it actually ends up being a machlokas of the Amorayim. Um, I'm going to move on to this new Mishnah here. Uh, which is a, you know, interesting Mishnah. Um, right? So we give a virgin 12 months from when the husband asked to marry her, right? After they've done a Rusin. So in other words, after they've done the first part of the marriage ceremony, she gets another 12 months uh, based to prepare herself, right? So this would probably be, she would prepare her clothing, you know, things for the dowry, things like that. And just as one gives a woman this amount of time, also the man is given himself a period of time to prepare itself. So this seems to be very equal of the Mishnah, right? That it acknowledges both the man and the woman need time to prepare themselves. But in the case of a widow, right, who should have some items pre- from her previous marriage, uh, she only gets 30 days. Um, he, he has mandalonin sue. So let's say the 12 months pass or the 30 days pass and they didn't actually get married, you know, because of some sort of delay. They don't actually put blame here on whose delay it is, but there's a delay there. At that point, she can start to partake of his food. Basically, she eats of his food. And not only that, she can even start to eat his truma if she's a Yisrael and um, he's a coin. Ravi Tarpan Omer, Notnin La Kol Hatruma. Right? So the Tanaim actually disagree about this, right? When does the coin have to start giving a woman who is Erosin with uh, to, to give her sustenance from truma itself? And Ravi Tarpan says he can give her all of her, you know, he may give her all of her sustenance, uh, all of her Mizanot from truma. In other words, during uh, her, so just as a little bit of a side note there, right? If she was a Nida, she would not be allowed to eat truma. She actually would have to sell it to a priest. And then she could take whatever she sold to that and use it to, to buy a chulin to be non-sacred food. Rabbi Akiva says, no, he has to give her half chulin and half truma. So therefore, when she you know, is ritually impure, right? When she's a Nida, uh, when she's Tame, she would be allowed to, she would have food that she could eat. Hayabam truma, right? A priest who is a Yabam though, right? And he, right, doesn't actually give the Yamava truma, right? In other words, just having that relationship of Yabam and Yabama, they don't give truma. Yabam. But if she finished six months of this 12-month waiting period, right, under her husband, right, and then he died, and then she waits another six months 
before the Yavam, or let's say she waited, you know, 11 months and 29 days, and then one day with the Yavam, right? Or if she completed all of the time necessary under the Yavam, except for one day, she still cannot eat truma, okay? So the idea is, is that she has to do a full 12 months under somebody in order to get uh, truma. She can't combine it between a Baal and a Yavam. So this this uh, teaching, right, is the is the first part of, of the Mishnah. But later on, a Beitin came and sort of amended this Mishnah. Now, this is not a formulation that we have normally seen. So we're seeing editing within the Mishnah itself, which is unusual, and said, that a woman never eats truma until she gets to the chupa itself. And the Gemara will go on and explain uh, why that is uh, in the end, right? And it, it gives a whole, um, you know, basically uh, a conversation that there could be a set of circumstances, right, where she started to eat truma and then they end up not getting married. And she basically ate truma that she wasn't supposed to eat. And that's really a very big issue because she basically then was never entitled to, uh, to the truma itself. So uh, a couple of things about this Mishnah. You know, it's interesting to see the Mishnah really talk about this waiting period that happened of a year. And the idea is, so in other words, the Eresim, half of the ceremony, and then they sort of entered what we would consider today to be the engagement period, right? Like we get engaged and then we prepare for the wedding. There was, you formalize that engagement period with half of the wedding ceremony. You were entitled to 12 months. I think it's interesting to see how the Mishnah points out that both men and women have preparing to do. And this is a very interesting Mishnah in that from a meta point of view, it self-edits itself. It gives one version of the halakha that it obviously wanted to maintain, right? It wanted to remind us that originally you were entitled to truma, even if that marriage gets delayed, even if nisuin doesn't happen, but ultimately the baiting actually reversed that. And I think the reason why it sort of self-edits itself is, you know, that leniency about eating truma must have somehow, I would assume it persisted a little bit. And so the mission almost wants to go out of its way to be like, yes, there was people who did that, but that's really not what we do today. Okay. Um, I think the last point about protecting the truma, so to speak, it should not surprise anybody, right? Meaning we've been paying so much attention for all of these masechtot about how careful everybody was with Truma. And I think that it makes good sense also in light of the fact that Truma was not particularly, I mean, Truma in a time of a Beta Mikdash and actual offerings was not really what they were dealing with, right? So all of the details about the marriage might still even apply today. The Truma issue wasn't really even in, you know, in the happening at the time that they make this halacha. So, or that it's recorded in the Mishnah anyway, right? So I, I don't know. I think that that's, it, it makes perfect sense to me in part because they need to make every great effort to preserve these halachot that were not, you know, in in play. Yeah, and look, I think the truma issue is a real issue. Like this is a halacha that's a deraisa. It's totally not part of how we like, you know, practice Judaism today. 
But it's so interesting to see that this intermingling of Kohanim and Yisrael, it had real uh, consequences, you know, to a marriage itself. Right. Okay, I'm going to pick up the Gemara. I'm at the top of Amabet. Basically, you're Dana, where you've just left off, right? But the Gemara is going to go back to the beginning question, namely, how how does how does the how does the Mishnah know this? Where or we could say, where do they derive these halachot, these details? And the commentaries we shown them make it very clear that this kind of um, learning, I guess we would call it, is less of being a real derivation from Sukim, from biblical verses, and more. Um, uh, you know, a connection to the biblical verse that will then support the claim or the position within the mission. Namely, Now, this is a very important verse in the story of Rivka, meaning when Avraham sends his servant to go find a wife for Yitzchak in the Torah, and he goes and he finds Rifko, who's you know watered the camels and the whole big story, and then they go, he goes to Lavan, right? This is her brother to say, you know, let's the girl will come with me, right? And they say, well, let's ask the girl herself. The brother and the mother of Rifka say, let her, let the girl Hanara, um, let her sit with us, and she'll let let her stay with us, rather, right? Yamim Oasur. It says it sounds like days or ten. And so the commentaries on the biblical text say Yamim o Asur means a year. Yamim comes to mean a year. Asur, like from 10, means 10 months. Meaning there is a, a good sense, a good, you know, practice, I guess, that that's how long it took to put together what, a dowry and get everybody ready for the wedding and, and that she's going to be leaving her family's home. And of course, the statement of, you know, let's go consult with the, da- the daughter herself, meaning Rivka herself, and, you know, while we think that she should stay here with us, everybody knows the end of the story, which is that Rivka says, no, I'll go now, right? She's going to join, she's going to go be married to Yitzchak right away. And this, of course, leads into all kinds of very interesting discussions about Rivka herself and the age that she may or may not have been when she goes to get married and so on, none of which is here, right? What's here, and, and, and I say this because I think that when the Gemara introduces Rivka, it automatically kind of brought me to start thinking about those Midrashim, about her age when she got married. But that's the, the text of the Gemara is using the verse from Rivka simply to establish the amount of time that the preparation before a wedding would really take and the idea that there should be you know 10 months or a year my yamim so the gemara says well what how, how do we know meaning i've now all I've kind of given away the farm but the gemara goes through it what is the meaning of yamim if we meet if if we understand it to mean two days so then why do would people say that right like two days or a sort like it just it doesn't really make sense. That's not how people talk. So maybe it means 10 days or two days versus 10 days. We've got another verse, which is specifically in Vayikra tw- chapter 25, when it's talking there, it really says, it should be, um, the redemption comes, you know, upon the yamim. What does it mean, yamim? Not days, but indeed a year. And that we take that 
understanding from Vayikra and bring it back to Breshit. And we understand that this is really, you know, days, meaning a year or 10, 10 then comes to months. And that's the limud of, of how this comes to mean 10 days or a year. I'm sorry, a year or 10 days. And then the Gemara says, well, why not just understand days to mean a month? Why would it mean a year? We say plenty of times, and in this particular case, the citation is from Bamidbar Numbers, chapter 11, right? It says, uh, un- until or the, in- the entirety of the month of days. This is, well, you want to talk about then we can understand that's talking about a month of days. But you can't interpret the, the we've got you know power of interpretation here. It says if you want to interpret Yamim to line up with Yamim, that's a good way of interpreting. That's a it follows the rules of interpretation. But the moment you've got Yamim versus Chodesh Yamim, that's no longer a good enough parallel to draw the inference that Yamim here meaning the story of Rivka, is the same meaning as the Chodesh Yamim over there in Bamidbar. So therefore, don't do it. Don't interpret it that way. This means a year, 12 months for, you know, 12 months or 10 for the preparation prior to marriage. Now, of course, the discussion here goes on to then talk about what about a katana? What about somebody who, a woman or girl, who has not yet reached the age of majority, which lines up, meaning it makes, the Gemara was also apparently in, in sync with these Midrashim about Rivka's age at the time that she goes to get married and the time that she expresses herself, right? So so deliberate, deliberately and with strength to say, no, she'll go now to go join Avram's household and marry Yitzchak. So just very quickly, the Gemara here says, um, you know, Amar Rabbi Zera, Benhi Uvenavia Yecholin La Cave, meaning either the girl or the father can delay this wedding until she actually comes of age. So the fact that they say, well, let's ask the girl herself, might actually speak to um, those in, who want to interpret the story of Rivka to say that she's already hit the age of majority, because otherwise, what's the like, why would they be consulting with her if she's a minor? Although, or maybe I'm wrong here, and you could say, well, if she's a minor, they'll also ask her because maybe she wants to delay. So the Gemara says, well, yeah, it makes sense that the girl herself could delay the wedding if she's not ready because she's the one who's supposed to be getting married and she's younger. So let her have her say. Why would the father be able to delay the wedding because she's you know, not yet of age. So what happens? He says, maybe she's only agreeing to get married now because she doesn't really understand what she's doing. So let the father have this kind of um, ability to protect his daughter by saying, you know, tomorrow she's going to realize she's made a big mistake as it all kind of sinks in. And she, you know, this is exactly the difference, at least in theory, right, between a katana and a bugaret, meaning somebody who is not yet of age and someone who is of age is exactly that decision-making apparatus, um, at least presumably, right? I'm not saying that 12 is necessarily when it really kicks in, at least not in our day and age, but fine, right? The idea that the father can protect her is exactly the point that they can delay, not forever, but until she hits the age of majority, and then she can kind of, you know, continue at will, so to speak, into the marriage. And Rabbi Amar Rabbi Abar Barlevi ain't putkin al ktana lasia kashihi ktana. 
And Rabbi Abba Ralid, he says, you can't finalize an agreement. You can't make a, you can't close the agreement that the girl will marry while she's a minor. You can finalize an agreement that you're going to marry this girl who is currently a minor once she is no longer a minor. But the idea is that the marriage itself is supposed to take place once she's an adult woman in terms of this kind of planning. And then the Gemara says, well, isn't that obvious, right? Meaning, Shita, like, isn't this isn't this the whole point, right? That she's supposed to only get married when she's an adult. The idea being that maybe she's going to end up become becoming afraid of marriage if you make too many plans now. And, she, you know, and she's going to, you know, she's going to walk away from it because it became too much because she was too young before she even enters into the whole discussion. So Rabbi Abba Bralevi's point is, you know, don't worry about that. You can finalize the agreement that you're going to marry her once she's an adult, when she's a minor, but she's not going to get married when she's a minor. And of course, this calls into question this backdrop, as I said, of Rifka and the, the suggestion of the Midrash or the claim of the Midrash that she got married, the famous Midrash, that she got married at three. And, you know, there are other sources. Ibn Ezra says maybe she's 27. There's a toast vote, but it's not here. It said she was 14, meaning not everybody, and I think this Gemara speaks to that, no, not everybody wants to think of the risk of getting married to Yitzchak happening when she is a minor, let alone three, right? And I, I, I can't be sure, right, that this is in the back of Chazal's minds as well, but I feel like they're using the support, right? The, we shall say that's a support from this verse, exactly what this means, that there's a preparation time before marriage, and it seems to me that that's not just to get your trousseau ready, right? Or your, your dowry, whatever. It may also be to give the girl a chance to hit the age of majority. Uh, look, I, I think this is actually getting into the technical part. This is kind of like the discussion we needed when we learned that girls who are, have not yet reached majority could be put, you know, could be committed to marriage. Right. Like, don't you want this discussion like a few months ago? Yeah. Yeah. Meaning because the idea that they're not rushing the youngins into marriage, literally, um, is helpful. Right. Like, where were you during Yavamos? <laughs> this is the <laughs> passage I needed to read many months ago. So when you read this passage, yes, I don't think it's something anybody would put into practice today, but it feels much more reasonable. Um, yeah, I think the question is, to what extent is this the way things were done? And to what extent is that other way, namely actual minors getting married, the way things were done? Right. I, I don't know. That's a good question. And, and that's kind of what I was left with, because it seems such a reversal from some of the other Gemaras that we've seen before. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.